just before we come to the, uh, the ministry of the word, just in response to what Brian said there about we, we reflect on what we've just sung, and I just hope you don't mind just a, a word to share, which was as I stood um, singing amongst you all, it just struck me that we've just done something incredibly valuable uh, in worshiping the creator in that way. And um, I've just been noticing how little of the Western world worships him and how poorly my own life worships him most of the time. And yet this morning we intentionally worshiped. And it just, I heard God say, this is very beautiful. You know, whatever we think of the songs and maybe they're very familiar and maybe our own singing is great or not great or whatever, it doesn't matter. It's our hearts that count. And I just felt then we were standing as a church with our hearts together worshiping the Savior, and that's very beautiful. And we wear royal robes, and we may not deserve them. In fact, we don't deserve them, but we do, because Jesus has made us righteous, and we're wearing the robes. So we stand as kings and queens and princes and princesses before him today. And that's a great honor and a great joy. So I just wanted to share that. hope that encourages many of you. Um, and now we're going to turn to uh, Luke and chapter 9. Uh, the words will be on the screen, but if you want to follow them in the books, it, uh, it's on page 1039, 1039 of the Blue Bibles. We're going to start reading from verse 18, which is in the top right of that page. We're going to read through to verse 36, then we'll just skip a little bit to verse 43, um, and I'm sure you'll be, able to, you'll be able to follow. Luke chapter 9 and verse 18. Once when Jesus was praying in private and his disciples were with him, he asked them, who do the crowds say I am? They replied, some say John the Baptist, others say Elijah, and still others that one of the prophets of long ago has come back to life. But what about you, he asked, who do you say I am? Peter answered, God's Messiah. Jesus strictly warned them not to tell this to anyone, and he said, The Son of Man must suffer many things and be rejected by the elders, the chief priests, and the teachers of the law. And he must be killed, and on the third day be raised to life. Then he said to them all, Whoever wants to be my disciple must deny themselves and take up their cross daily and follow me. For whoever wants to save their life will lose it, But whoever loses their life for me will save it. What good is it for someone to gain the whole world and yet lose or forfeit their very self? Whoever is ashamed of me and my words, the Son of Man will be ashamed of them when he comes in his glory and in the glory of the Father and of the holy angels. Truly, I tell you, some who are standing here will not taste death before they see the kingdom of God. About eight days After Jesus said this, he took Peter, John, and James with him and went up onto a mountain to pray. As he was praying, the appearance of his face changed and his clothes became as bright as a flash of lightning. Two men, Moses and Elijah, appeared in glorious splendor, talking with Jesus. They spoke about his departure, which he was about to bring to fulfillment at Jerusalem. Peter and his companions were very sleepy. But when they became fully awake, they saw his glory and the two men standing with him. 
As the men were leaving Jesus, Peter said to him, Master, it is good for us to be here. Let us put up three shelters, one for you, one for Moses, and one for Elijah. He did not know what he was saying. While he was speaking, a cloud appeared and covered them, and they were afraid as they entered the cloud. A voice came from the cloud saying, This is my son whom I have chosen. Listen to him. When the voice had spoken, they found that Jesus was alone. The disciples kept this to themselves and did not tell anyone at that time what they had seen. While everyone was marveling at all that Jesus did, he said to his disciples, Listen carefully to what I am about to tell you. The Son of Man is going to be delivered into the hands of men. But they did not understand what this meant. It was hidden from them so that they did not grasp it, and they were afraid to ask him about it. An argument started among the disciples as to which of them would be the greatest. Jesus, knowing their thoughts, took a little child and had him stand beside him. Then he said to them, whoever welcomes this little child in my name welcomes me, and whoever welcomes me welcomes the one who sent me. For it is the one who is least among you all who is the greatest. Master, said John, we saw someone driving out demons in your name, and we tried to stop him because he's not one of us. Do not stop him, Jesus said, for whoever is not against you is for you. As the time approached for him to be taken up to heaven, Jesus resolutely set out for Jerusalem. It's the word of the Lord. Before I begin, I just want to say um, how glad I am to be with you all this morning, and thank you for inviting me to share in um, this part of your journey through Luke's Gospel. As area dean, I'm um, uh, balancing my responsibilities at St. Bartholomew and St. Lawrence and St. Swithin with um, leading the deanery in its mission action planning and uh, keeping a weather eye on the clergy, as Brian said, <laughs> but also... Um, very much um, part of the appointment process that will um, this time hopefully uh, discern your, your new incumbent. And so you are all very much on my heart and I bring to you the prayers and good wishes of the deanery leadership team for all of you and of course for the right person to be filling out the form to become your new vicar. So I'm just going to begin with a prayer. Lord Jesus, open your word to our hearts and our hearts to your word, that we may receive it, understand it, and share it. In Jesus' name, amen. I'm particularly pleased, actually, to be here for this Sunday when you're looking at Jesus, the God-man, and I think, actually, Brian said to me, 20 minutes is about right for a sermon. I probably could go on all week. <laughs> I've promised the children's group workers that I won't. Um, but Jesus the God-man, this is perhaps um, the most mind-bending and mysterious and um, pivotal way that you can describe Jesus. You've been looking at Jesus the healer, Jesus the teacher, 
And those are easier to relate to because we know what healers and teachers do. We have experience ourselves of what that means. But God-man, what does that mean? This is the wonder of technology. I seem to have a different version of here than I, was, than I had finished with this morning. In verse 18, Jesus goes straight in and says to his disciples, who do the crowds say that I am? Sorry, this is not, this is not what I had written. Who do the crowds say that I am? So the crowds think he might be a prophet, John the Baptist, or Elijah, or one of the other ancient prophets, um, all of whom, all of whom obviously had died, John the Baptist very recently, the others hundreds of years earlier. So the crowds have an inkling that something extraordinary is happening. He's not an ordinary man. Prophets are those with a direct, special line to God through whom God delivers his message to his people. They would warn and rebuke and encourage and advise and teach and pray for God's people, calling them to respond to God's words. They're also known to do deeds of power, like Elijah raising from the dead the son of the widow at Zarephath. And that all fits very well with what they've seen of Jesus. They've heard him teaching scripture with consummate authority. They've heard him speaking of the kingdom of God, of how people should behave, and they've witnessed his healings, including the raising from the dead of both the widow of Nain's son and Jairus' daughter, all these in Luke. For the crowd think that Jesus is a man through whom God is speaking, and through whom God will help them. A great prophet, they say in Luke 7, 16, a great prophet who has appeared among us, God has come to help his people. So Jesus makes no comment on this opinion, but he turns to his disciples and asks them the same question, well, who do you say that I am? Well, the disciples certainly knew Jesus as a human being. They'd walked with him, they'd climbed mountains with him, they talked, they laughed, they ate and drank with him. They'd witnessed his total love and of and obedience to God and his extraordinary authority when speaking of God and God's kingdom. And they were in awe of his miracles. So Peter has no hesitation in answering the question, and it's more than just a prophet, even a great one. The chosen one of God, he declares. In other words, in other translations, the Messiah. The Hebrew word meaning the anointed one, or in the Greek of the New Testament, the Christ. This is the person the ancient prophets foretold, Peter thinks, and that the Jewish nation had been expecting for hundreds of years. But there was some difference of expectation amongst the prophecies, amongst the prophets, about exactly what kind of role the Messiah would fulfill. 
But the first thing to say that is that the Messiah would be a mortal man, a powerful leader, yes, chosen by God and acting under divine authority, yes, but a mortal. Some thought the Messiah would be a powerful military leader in the line of King David, who, like him, would conquer Israel's enemies at the head of an army and with divine assistance, but this time once and for all. Some thought it would be a high priest who would rebuild and cleanse the temple, or, or one who would bring peace and justice by re-establishing God's rule in the world. Excuse me. Jesus was born in a place on earth in Bethlehem. He was known as Jesus of Nazareth. People knew his mother and father and his brothers and sisters. This is the information you can know about a man, but not about a God. Although the geographical criteria were right, Jesus, the humble, mild-mannered teacher and healer, didn't exactly fit the Messiah templates of the ancient prophecies, and there was confusion. Even John the Baptist, who had announced that the Christ was here, sent two of his own followers to ask Jesus, are you the one who was to come, or should we expect someone else? Nevertheless, his closest followers, right up until they met him after his resurrection, thought of him as the Messiah, a man chosen by God and working under God's authority. Perhaps you could say they thought of him as a uniquely godly man. So going back to the text in verse 21, we see that Jesus then referred to himself as the Son of Man, not the Son of God. The Son of Man is a phrase which in Aramaic, which is the language that he spoke, simply means mortal or human being. But it's also a title that goes back to what some saw as a messianic prophecy Thank you. In, in Daniel about one who would be dressed in dazzling white, like a son of man coming with the clouds of heaven. Perhaps it's rather a cryptic way for Jesus to refer to his own divinity. Theologian Richard Balcom says that Jesus, although usually reticent about calling himself the Messiah, nevertheless speaks and acts for God in a way that far surpassed the authority of a prophet in the Jewish tradition. He spoke of himself as being one with the Father, as being the bread of life, the light of the world, the way, the truth, and the life. He was teacher, servant, shepherd, lord, and king, yet gentle and humble in heart. He carried out acts which were the sole prerogative of God, healing people, casting out demons, and forgiving sins, not in the name of the Lord, but on his own authority. He declared that those who had seen him had seen the one who sent him. As Tom Wright says, he was not simply pointing to God's kingdom in some far-off way in the future, but causing it to appear before people's eyes, setting in motion 
the events through which it would become firmly established. And it's in the transfiguration, in this episode that we have today in our reading, that Peter, James, and John see for themselves, albeit fleetingly and still without comprehending it, that Jesus actually is more than the Messiah, or rather that the, the Messiah is more than man. This glimpse of God's glory in Jesus is meant to equip them for the trials to come and to give them a personal knowledge of the glory of God to hold on to when everything appears to go badly wrong. The appearance of Moses the lawgiver and Elijah the prophet underline Jesus' claim that he came to fulfill all the law and the prophets. And when they disappear, he alone is left, the crowning glory of God's rescue plan for humankind. And it's significant that Moses and Elijah spoke with Jesus about his departure, verse 31, which he was about to accomplish at Jerusalem. The word actually is exodus, which when you say it like that, rings uh, another much bigger bell. The word used when Moses delivered God's people out of slavery in Egypt to the edge of the promised land. Jesus, the God-man, will lead God's people out of the slavery of something much greater, the slavery of sin and death, and into the true kingdom of God, the new creation, which all humanity will be redeemed. Clearly no mortal man, however great a prophet, could do this. I love that bit, uh, Luke says, Peter didn't know what he was saying when he offered to build these shelters. I wonder if that's true. I wonder if Peter might have had a sudden insight, remembering a prophecy in Zechariah, that God's new age would be ushered in during the Feast of Booths, or Tabernacles, the festival kept by Jews for centuries that points towards the culmination of God's redemptive purposes, the festival in which they built themselves flimsy shelters as a reminder that their security properly comes from God. And in amongst all of this, the disciples, overshadowed and enveloped and terrified by the presence of God, hear God say, this is my son, my chosen, listen to him. So fully God and fully human. This is something that people have wrestled with ever since um, the, the very early days of the church. It's why I could go on for a week and we still wouldn't finish, I think. <laughs> um, but it has to be so, this mystery of Jesus being fully God and fully human. Because as John Macquarie says, Either um, The alternative, either, is to so identify Jesus with the human race that he's engulfed in the human condition and incapable of being a saviour or redeemer, or else of so stressing his divinity and therefore his difference from the human race that he's also 
um, irrelevant to the human condition and once more has to be declared incapable of being a saviour or redeemer. The word of God became flesh to redeem humanity because that is the nature of God's uh, grace and generosity, that his creation should be made new and delivered from the power of sin and death. Coming down from the mountain, the disciples kept silent. Perhaps no wonder, because it was all so extraordinary. The idea that Jesus, the man Messiah, could also be fully divine still is extraordinary, even for us who know how the events unfolded when they went to Jerusalem, the resurrection and the ascension of Jesus to his rightful place at God's right hand on high. As Jesus set his face towards Jerusalem, we set ours towards Lent. And perhaps it's a good time to hear this question for ourselves from Jesus. Who do you say that I am? Who do you say that I am? And if our conclusion is that he wasn't deluded, he wasn't deluding others, he was divine, and yet he was human, then then what should our response be? And I think that's the challenge for us uh, this Lent, perhaps. I like this quote um, from Jane Williams' recent book, The Art of Advent. She says, we've tended to assume that Jesus became human like us, but now we discover that we are invited to become human like Jesus. I wonder if you struggle to feel as if you're godly enough. What about if we just tried to be human in the way that Jesus models humanity? Wouldn't that make a difference to our relationships and our communities? I think that would be transformative, actually. We have seen the glory of God revealed in the person of Jesus Christ, the God-man. We can't understand how. We can praise God for why. And how can we encourage each other to hold on to that vision and that mystery when things become difficult for us? Those dark times when it's easy to lose sight of that glory of God. So as I close, just want to to pray this prayer. Lord, this Lent, may we come to a fresh understanding of what Jesus Christ, the God-man, means in our lives and in our world. May we have the courage to embrace the mystery and share it, to model humanity as Jesus modelled it, for your glory. Amen.